Welcome in. It is very, very nearly the end of January. Do you know where your Cody Bellinger is? We don't. Uh, this is this is not a rebuild. We're a three-man show tonight, at least for the moment. Matt, Todd, Tom, DJ is on assignment, which is what we always say when we're not sure we'll ever see him again. Uh, <laughs> he is in we Florida. assume everything is fine. There's really no reason to think it isn't. We just technically can't be sure of that. Yeah, at Florida, in any moment, anything could go sideways. Yeah, well, DJ yeah. is the new Florida man, so you know we need to be cognizant of that. Yikes! Yeah, it's, it's a dark time. Well, so where's Cody? We know where DJ is. Where's Cody? That's what I want to know. Is anybody following his private jet or anything? I, I, I don't know if he's even on one. <laughs> I think he just, you know, went went home to Arizona for the winter and and has not moved. No, that's not true. There's actually been a, a couple of photos and sort of trackings of uh, vacations that he's been on. I think he's got on two separate vacations this winter, which is what I would do if I were in his position, too. You're, you know you're going to get $100 million, probably right. closer to yeah. $200 million, But you don't know when and you don't know from whom. And you can either sit and stress about that or you can say, it's not even my job to decide where I go next. I'm going on vacation. Oh, I came back and I still don't know. I'm going on vacation again. Just, Just max out those credit cards. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even last it's not like this is one of those guys who has been scrapping and scrapping and now he's a free agent. Now maybe he'll make the real money. He got 17 million last year. Yeah, he's he's fine. We'll uh not worry about Cody too much. I assume he's not in as much danger as DJ is. Uh, but we, we yeah, just 17 can't know. million. Go ahead. 17 million last year. What do you think he spent? It was like, he spent 10? He spent, you know, I can't 85, say 000? that I know what the dispensaries of Illinois are charging these days. So I really. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it depends on if he had DJ as a tax uh, advisor. Because uh, if he true. did, he probably had an extra million and a half in his pocket. That's yeah. how good DJ is. So. Or was. Or was. Or was. Um, yeah. Uh, we don't know where Bellinger is, but we're getting closer sort of by process of elimination. Things are happening. Things are happening for the Cubs. Since last we spoke, Hector Neris has joined the Chicago Cubs. So there are things. Things are happening. The bullpen is really actually a lot more settled than last time we spoke. Neris is... A medium-sized name. He's not a household name, but how many relievers are? Uh, go ahead. Well, we could have a household name. It's just not because he's good, and I'm thinking Love Lady. <laughs> and that was yeah, the other I missed... thing I was going to say. Not only did they sign Neris, who's good and fits right into you know seventh, eighth inning role. Uh, he's very sort of a a different style, but a similar overall quality of pitcher to Julian Merriweather. And I can say that in safety and we can all understand what it means because DJ is not here. Uh, <laughs> but, 
But you add Neris to that mix and the high leverage sector of the bullpen starting to look good. We know, you know, they already acquired Yancey Almonte earlier this winter. They also signed Richard Lovelady, lefty reliever. Right now, it's not clear who the lefty in the bullpen would be on opening day if they really need one. So that's good. Good to give yourself options. It's a minor league deal, but he could earn his way onto the team. Same goes, although he's a righty, for Carl Edwards Jr. That was fun. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. Yeah. Very different. Not the same guy who left the Cubs before. You know, he's still still tall and skinny, still throws overhand, you know, fastballs and stuff, but he's lost a lot of the velocity. The curveball isn't what it was at his best, mostly because of the lost velocity. But he's also just completely reinvented himself. He's got a change up now. That's his best secondary pitch, which is very weird. Uh, given the Carl Edwards, we knew who could never find a change up that worked for him. He's got one. So maybe he, like Mark Leiter Jr., like some of the other guys in that pen, is almost as good against lefties as he is against righties, even though he's a righty. Plus, it's just fun that, you know, that's one of the 2016 dudes. Steadily, the number of 2016 dudes have been going down. If he makes the team, it goes back up for once. Well, we lost a Ross, but we gained a Carl's Jr., so... There you go. <laughs> comes out the comes out the wash. Desperately trying to maintain 2016. <laughs> uh, Until we get to the new 2016, which may be this season or next. It might be next season. Okay. Well, I wasn't sure how aggressive you were about to get just there. But yeah, I think uh, we're starting to see the roster come into focus. And it's nice to have this bullpen depth. That supposedly, the rumor is, they're still looking for even another bullpen arm, which I wouldn't be against at all. But I also think, given the guys that are locked in, the guys who might be pushed into the bullpen from the rotation, we'll get into that later, and the options they already have around as minor league depth, if they don't make any more additions to the pen, I, I think I'm okay with that. Wow. Are you guys all feeling right. that way? Sure, we've come a long way. Yeah. I mean, I'll yeah, take your word it, for it. I, I... I am more comfortable than I than with just about anything else. So, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the starting rotation I'm relatively comfortable with, even though we don't know exactly who it is yet. Uh, but I read your piece on um, Drew Smiley, Todd Smiley, and um, yeah. And uh, did I you mean, find with, time to do anything else during your day, or or did? That take up the whole thing. <laughs> I read that lengthy piece. A little lengthy, <laughs> a little uh, wordy. But you know, I have to read through anything that's, that's about Todd because that you know, there's not many of us left. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it it what it tells me is that we've got depth. Uh, so you know, that's an encouraging thing. Yeah, yeah, and I, honestly, let's pivot right there and, and talk a little bit about the rotation because that is another thing that I don't think will be addressed further in a significant way. They might add a depth starter or there could be, because there's been some movement in various other markets. There could be sort of an unexpected opportunity to trade some of their excess talent for a controllable starter. And I think Jeb would be interested in that, but I don't think he's actively looking to add to the rotation anymore, which is fine. Cause like you said, we're starting to get, more comfortable there. I think we all are settled on Steele, Imanaga, 
Hendrix, Tyone. That's one through four. Or whether it's Tyone, Hendrix, who cares? Yep. The fifth spot is really interesting. And I wanted to talk about that and gauge what you guys think of it because there are a ton of options there. Uh, This week on the CHGO Cubs podcast, they interviewed Tommy Hadovy, pitching coach. They talked to him specifically about Hayden Wisniewski, and he was pretty effusive, said, we absolutely believe he can start. Now, what's he going to say? He's not going to say, ah, yeah, this guy sucks, and we're going to try and only have him available as a matchup reliever or something. But it sounded pretty legit. I think they believe that they found some adjustments they can make with him that are going to make him more able to turn the lineup over if needed, if he wins that job. But then going into camp, we're almost in the same spot we were in last year where there is this huge competition. Do you remember how many guys were in the mix last spring for the fifth starter spot before Wisniewski won it? No. Uh, This time around, I think we're looking at Wisniewski, Javier Assad, Drew Smiley. Again, wrote about him today at Northside Baseball. We can talk more about why that's more viable than maybe folks who remember the second half of his season think. Jordan Wicks, and then Ben Brown and Cade Horton kind of knocking on the door already. And that's without considering any more external additions. That's a lot of dudes. Uh, So I think, I don't know. I don't even know what question to ask, but do you guys have a sort of hierarchy in your head of who you want to see win that spot? Who you're hoping? I mean, that's kind of depth. That's kind of a, a it's, it, I mean, is that depth? If, if we're talking about five start, yeah. five hole starters or six hole starters, I mean, it's a good thing to have, I guess, mm-hmm. but it, that's a kind of depth. I'd rather have that depth in the three hole, but I'm going to go with Assad <laughs> yeah. based on nothing except that's what I want. I love <laughs> yeah. my Assad. I'd love to see him pick up that fifth spot. The swagger and just when he's good, it's more beautiful. Than when the other guys are good. When he's good, it's more beautiful. Exactly. He's enjoyable. Yeah. Um, that that, that start last year where he had eight scoreless against the Reds in September. Mm, so good. Um, I'm not sure that it's consistently. I don't know that you can get that out of him the way you can maybe. Hopefully, I think out of Wicks, but I like that pick. Dad, what do you think? See, I'm I'm leaning on the accountant, um, and because because he came in and did a great job, and I it in my mind, and that, that's you know a twisted dark place that no one wants to visit, but um, it it's his job to lose. Wix's, yeah, yeah. I think. Oop. Yeah. Tom mentioned before we started that he's driving, so we might lose him into a dead zone. Sounds like that might be happening. I'm not sure. Um, But I agree with, it's not even that he has the highest floor per se or the highest ceiling, but Mm -hmm. he sort of balances the two the best. And the fact that he's young. And so it feels like, I think this is more emotional than than real, but it, it feels like, He's the guy who's more likely to end up in the upper half of his potential outcomes. Whereas you, you worry about 
age and health with Smiley or you worry about have we already seen the best of Assad because he was never really a hyped prospect or anything. Wicks is in that sweet spot where you just feel like, okay, here's here's kind of the, the midline. I, I just expect him to come in above that, even if it's a little irrational. Yeah, it, 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 it feels like uh, he did a great job. You know, it's kind of the opposite of PCA. PCA came in and, you know, he's, he's well hyped um, and he struggled. It wasn't terrible, mm-hmm. but he s- struggled. Um, you know, I don't know that center field is his job to lose, uh, but Wicks came in and, and pitched the heck out of the, of the stuff. And um, I think it's his job to lose. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, just for uh, listeners who didn't have, half an hour to spend reading over 2,500 words, which is usually a sign that I did something wrong. But that's how long (laughs) the piece I wrote on Drew Smiley for today was. And for those who didn't read it, didn't see it, Smiley went to driveline this winter, which is not a panacea. We used to get real excited about those kinds of visits because they were much more rare and there was a lot more low-hanging fruit for pitchers who maybe just weren't performing up to their potential on a lot of fronts. Now, it's much more common, which means sort of the relative edge you can get is smaller because everybody's doing something like that to maximize their potential velocity, make sure their pitch mix is optimized, tweak grips and stuff like that. Almost everyone does that kind of stuff over the winter now. Plus, a lot of the things that you would go there and do in the past are sort of already done. And so what you saw in the field last year is probably closer to what Drew Smiley's capable of than the same guy in a, or a, a different guy in the same position five or six years ago. But it's still really interesting in his particular case because last year and for most of his career, dude has not had a changeup. Well, at driveline this winter, he was working on a splitter that I've dubbed the splutter because really it it is a splitter, very clearly a splitter, kills spin, tumbles, sort of the same spin axis as his fastball, but it also has a relative cut action, which is just incredibly rare for that pitch. And that could make it really funky and effective against both lefties and righties. It could swap in for his cutter, which is the worst pitch of his three from the last couple of years, and possibly just sort of set up a whole different usage pattern for his arsenal. Plus, they actually got him, albeit in a small sample and just in a lab. You can't assume that this can port right into games, but they got him throwing a slider that actually has some sweep to it, actually gets to the glove side which Smiley has a really hard time doing historically, like a a strangely hard time doing. So those would be huge changes for him. Those could make him, he's a guy who wants to start. He's always wanted to start throughout his career. Last year as down the stretch was not the first time that a team sort of shoved him into a bullpen role. He's come back to the rotation more than once because that's what he wants to do. If he's going to come to spring training and try to do it this year, these are the tools that might make it possible for him to have the kind of run we saw last spring. Uh, and then, yeah, he could 
he could still leapfrog Wicks, not yeah. just because of seniority and a nine and a half million dollar salary attached to him, but because when he's doing well, I mean, we saw it early last season. He was the number three in the rotation behind Stroman and Steele, and he was just yeah. as good as they were a few times through. Yeah. So, and that uh, seniority and money thing is not helping Bodie at all. <laughs> no, it works <laughs> against you once you're off the 40 man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But while it's, yeah, I think it's a little bit of a different dynamic. We'll see. But yeah, I, Smiley, at this point, I'm considering him a viable rotation option. But I think I agree with you, Dad, that it's Wix's job to lose with the caveat that guys are going to go try and seize it. And it, I do think yeah. each person on that list could show up and do something in camp that would make the Cubs go, oh, we have to reevaluate this. Which, which you know, that reinforces our, our discussion about uh, depth because that now you're not talking about five pitchers. You're talking about seven. Uh, and if they're all pitching well, then it gives the Cubs so much uh, capital. Uh, to do something with either pitch him or put him in the bullpen or rotate him in and out of whatever you know it it, it gives them it gives them all kinds of options. Yeah, and if Tom they just had I, anybody to hit, which I still think they will. I still think they'll make an addition to the lineup, probably a big one, probably a sort of stonerish left-handed hitter. But uh, Tom, just to circle no, back. Stonerish, think... like uh, you mean as like steel, like che- the Chong to Cheech? <laughs> is that what you mean, yeah. or no? I don't, is it? I hope it's just a coincidence that the Cubs have a lot of guys on the roster who look like they sort of spend their time doing this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is Illinois. I mean, it's legal and all that good stuff. I, uh, Tom, I, what you were saying though, where it's like, I'd rather have this this sort of quagmire at the third spot in the rotation instead of the fifth. That's a good point mm, because yep, true. I, even if, if each of these guys were 10% better and you had two fewer of the veteran options, I would like that. I'd be like, okay, well, so, somewhere in camp, three of these guys are going to step forward and be impressive. And one will get hurt and another one will sort of fall back. But from where they each are right now, it is harder. It's like, I need one to make a significant step forward so I can feel really good for that fifth day through the rotation every time. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, the, the, what we can be sure of too, is it'll be June or July and the rotation. I don't want to say it won't be anything like what we're talking about, but it will be different. Mm-hmm. Someone sure. will emerge because when you're talking about young guys, a lot of them kind of newish in career, and there'll be surprises, and that's what's kind of fun about a staff like this. Now, it might be more fun to have five established veterans who are, you know, potential all-star picks, but this is kind of fun too. You know, it's yeah. just it's just kind of the team we have right now, and and I'm just going to enjoy it. We've talked multiple times about how we expect some regression from Justin Steele, but we probably also expect Jamison Tyone to be a bit better than he was for most of last year. And that stuff just sort of evens out. There's not an ace on this staff. It's definitely not going to be like a a staff that gets put on the cover of Sports Illustrated, like the Cubs did in 2004 or whatever. 
not that you could anymore anyway, since Sports Illustrated is dead. But uh, it does, it's just very flat. And I sort of like rotations that are built like that. Just there's going to be one spot that makes you nervous until one of these guys sort of steps forward and then another one because there will be an injury. And then another one because we have to keep seeing development in order to feel confident. But yeah, I agree. It's it's definitely going to change by midsummer, which I guess we can then pivot to talking about some of the guys who are going to change it and who will change the lineup too because all the major top prospect lists are out now and the Cubs are all over them, including Cade Horton is like basically by consensus, one of the top 25 prospects in the game, one of the top four or five pitching prospects. And in some places, the top two or three, it's exciting. I think it's it's better than we probably expected going into this winter in terms of what scouts have spent the winter saying and seeing and talking about. Yeah, it's the ETA on on all these guys that you know that I that I don't know, and you know when you read into it, uh, that doesn't really tell you too much. I mean, you know, obviously they expect uh, PCA to be uh, a Cub this year at some point, if not right away. Um, but some of these other guys, it might be two, three years before they're around. But it's very encouraging. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, of course, when you have this many guys who make a top 100 list, who get onto the radar, some subset of them are going to be a little more distant. Uh, but it's nice that I think Orton, um, you know, some of it depends on when opportunity presents itself or how hard he really forces the issue. But I think a lot of the a lot of the people who made these lists and their interviews about them and stuff have said you could be seeing Kate Horton by June or by mid season. Anyway, Uh, you're very likely to see PCA in the lineup by that point could see Matt Shaw by the end of this year. And what I think is kind of cool. So you guys remember the U Darvish trade and how the maddening thing about that, there were several maddening things. One of them was everyone they traded him for, was like 17 years old. It felt like they were miles and miles away. Right. A couple of those guys sort of fizzled and faded. Owen Casey is panning out, baby. Uh, He hit more than 20 homers and was just crunching the ball in double A last year. He's still only 21, but he has basically proved himself at double A. All he has left to do is hit a triple A. And then he would be in the big leagues. Now it's a ton of swing and miss. He's going to be a boomer bust sort of guy. Like I, this, it would prejudice you way too much. If I said a left-handed Patrick wisdom, let's say, <laughs> do you like kind of like Joey Gallo, big left-handed just torches the baseball, but is also going to strike out a lot, but has a good enough approach to draw a bunch of walks. He's a good enough athlete to, to play right field without embarrassing you. Um, and that guy is now just one level away. It, it actually mm-hmm. worked. Something did pan out here and panned out when you consider his age relatively quickly. Yeah. Uh, so that's, 
that's cool. That's the one that keeps jumping out to me is he's consistently been in the top 50 on a lot of these lists. That's exciting. I, I so don't then know. you start, I start, cause I'm, you know, not as nice as most people. Um, I start looking at left field and thinking, Hmm, is he that good? <laughs> well, that's is he the question. That good? Yeah. Is he that good? Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll tell I you. mean, go ahead. Yeah. Will, will Owen pan out and, and if he does, then, you know, I'm sorry, Ian, but you're going to have to hit 290 for me to want to keep you around. And he doesn't yeah. do that. Ian's one of the most interesting players on the team going into this year, I think. I, he's got this contract that doesn't really kick in until this year. It's three years, $60 million. I don't think he's going anywhere, wow. at least for the first two years of that deal. He, he has a no-trade clause. And his production's pretty reliable. It's just not exciting. Right. right. Yeah. And last year, a bunch of us ended up frustrated with him because of how David Ross insisted on using him. There's the book, the seminal sabermetric text of 2004 or whatever it was that really laid out in clear and concise language the best way to do all these sort of essential things of managing a baseball team. One of them was about lineup construction. And it said, if there's a hitter who does everything well, except draw walks, put that guy third in the lineup huh. because that is where walks aren't especially valuable. Cause he comes up very often or too often with two outs and nobody on and home runs are unusually valuable. Because when there's two outs and nobody on, a home run is more helpful than ever. Because otherwise, it's unlikely you're going to convert a run in that situation. Well, David Ross relentlessly batted Ian Happ third last year. I don't think Craig Council is going to do that. Now, depending on how the rest of this offseason plays out, maybe Happ will bat fifth. Maybe he'll bat first. Maybe he'll bat second. Maybe he'll vary it significantly because we know Ian sometimes has trouble hitting left-handed pitching so maybe it'll vary a lot based on the the handedness of the opposing starter but I think we all got pretty frustrated last year by Ian Happ being asked to do exactly what he doesn't do well here's a guy who was second in the league in walks only Juan Soto walked more than Ian Happ and David Ross kept batting him where walks were less valuable to the team than if he had batted anywhere else so i think can you think of, of a rationale is... can you think of a rationale of why ross would have done that let's assume that he is privy to all the information we are mm-hmm. so what what could i mean make a case for why he would do something so seemingly um illogical yeah i think if part you can. of it is i <laughs> know you can't <laughs> batting third is an ego boost for some guys. And I don't think Ian has like a massive ego, but he certainly has a sense of self. And I think Ross was trying to show respect to him and, and, you know, put him where he sort of was signaling to him by where he penciled him in every day. You're our leader. You're our lineup staple. I also think while he can have all the info that we have, baseball guys who you know have been around the game and ross has been 
in professional baseball since the early 2000s, back when it was still conventional wisdom that your first and second hitters had to have some speed and that had to be a big element of their game. By the way, Ian has some of that, but for ignoring that part, I think he really wanted to bat Nico Horner in the top two spots, even in the first half when that wasn't necessarily the rational thing, the way Nico was hitting. And he wanted to bat Swanson in the top two spots because, again, going back to when David Ross first came into pro ball and for much of his life as a pro baseball dude, you bat your middle infielders at the top of the lineup because they're athletic, they're quick. That's It just mm-hmm. makes sense in a certain kind of baseball brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, he he had this new guy on a seven-year, $177 million contract. I mean, we saw before last year how much deference Ross gave to Jason Hayward that I think was tied, yes, to how much Ross loved Jason Hayward as a person and their history together, but also to his contract. David Ross kind of managed to, well, this is the roster they gave me, and this is the money attached to those guys. They're telling me what they think of these players, and I'm going to respond to it. Uh, which isn't wholly irrational. It's just, I don't know. I don't know. Well, and it's not your job. Your job is to put right. the best team out there in the best manner that you can put them out there. And, and you know what? Uh, reason to be optimistic coming into this year, when Christian Yelich signed a mega deal because he was like the best hitter on earth for two years before he fouled mm-hmm. the ball off his kneecap. And then when he came back, it wasn't the same dude anymore. Craig council experimented with moving him down a little bit minimally because he didn't want to disrespect him, but he did. And then he found a, a comfort zone for him by moving him to the leadoff spot and just yeah. left him there and Yelich thrived. And I think council maybe unlike Ross is going to be perfectly willing to do the same thing with the half if the opportunity presents itself. I just think he's not as locked into, or he might even see, you know, David Ross went down to Atlanta and personally recruited Dansby Swanson as part of them signing him last year. And I think part of the recruitment might've been, you're going to be my guy. You're going to be in the heart of the lineup. I need you to be the heartbeat of everything we do. And I think Craig Council might come in and say, Dansby, you're important to the team mostly because you're a great leader in the clubhouse in the dugout and in the box. And you also play tremendous defense. That's where most of your value lies. And there are going to be nights when I bat you sixth or seventh, because it makes more sense for our team, even though you have a massive salary attached to you. And even though everyone looks to you as a leader, that's going to be okay. It doesn't mean you're not a leader. I think council has a way to communicate that to people and work with people on that, that, Ross was sort of missing. I think that's why we saw a lot of Ian Happ batting third last year, but also the lineup didn't always give him a lot of good alternatives. So part of the job mm, is true. Cubs still have to sign Cody Bellinger or otherwise give council a reason to have Happ batting first, second, fifth, whatever the situation actually calls for. It's very rarely going to be batting him third or fourth. So, uh, let's assume that they sign Bellinger and we're back to 
the same lineup we had last year, essentially. So, uh, and we're running out of time. So are they assuming that Bush is the bat that they're adding? As opposed, you just mean like re-signing Bellinger brings you into stasis. Bush would be the only addition. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the only addition I can think of. I think... I think just like I talked about with the bullpen and the rotation, I think they've gotten to a point. They're not comfortable yet. Yeah. They're more comfortable in the rotation, more comfortable in the bullpen. They won't be comfortable until they either get Cody or are forced to sort of switch to a plan B and maybe it's Matt Chapman, maybe it's whomever. They do feel like they need to make one more big addition then I think they would be relatively comfortable with yes, Bush added with an eye toward is Owen Casey going to be up here in the second half or is Matt Shaw going to be contributing late in the season? Or can we sort of see how Morrell and Madrigal and wisdom play out over a little bit longer of a time horizon and make a trade when we need to in season? Uh, I think they're, comfortable waiting and seeing beyond bringing one more person or piece into the picture that isn't there right now, whether that's Bellinger or someone else. But I, I think coming into the winter, a lot of fans wanted to see either replace Bellinger and add two more significant pieces or get three new dudes. But that was always a pretty ambitious. I mean, when you just say that out loud, that's a huge offseason. Teams rarely yeah, successfully lot. do that. So, yeah. I don't know. I think, I think too, last year, Jan Gomes was pretty darn good and hitting yeah. the clutch like crazy. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful. Yeah. It's not going to happen again. We've talked about that. I also think, and maybe I've mentioned this on here before, I think Miguel Amaya's the regular catcher by like Memorial day. And mm-hmm. I would guess that they think they're going to get more offense and more dynamic offense because Gomes was good, but it was a lot of singles and not many walks and, you know, not a lot of power either. I think they think they'll get more playing time for Amaya and that he will be a more dynamic element in sort of the bottom half of the order than Gomes was. So they might, not feel like they have to do as much beyond re bringing back Bellinger or signing a Bellinger equivalent and then adding Bush as we would think that they would. Hmm. I don't know. Well, do you I... feel that confidence about Amaya? I, it was a weird rookie year for him, right? Yeah. I, I, I can't say that I do, but um, that's probably because I was uh, pretty happy with Gomes production Mm -hmm. so um i you know i I hope it is i hope he does great um i yeah i hope he does great i just i I can't say that i'm just i'm going to say oh yeah he'll be fine he'll be (laughs) he'll be uh johnny bench it was hard to focus on the fact that we wanted to see more of amaya and maybe more from amaya in the moment because gomes was so hot and was like in just the right way. He came up with the big hit over and over. 
So you just sort of rode that through the season. And now in the off season, at some point, I think we needed to make a mental switch to, yeah, but Amaya's the answer that they're looking for, at least in the short term going forward. Um, and then, but it's hard to make that switch because no, no new baseball has happened to make us flip that switch. It's just, we have to remember that uh, it's like changing out a furnace filter. The, the off season is happening and, and time is passing and Jan Gomes is becoming not the regular catcher of the Chicago Cubs, even though nothing's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think that is the most, most of what we wanted to talk about tonight. I guess I didn't mention, but Justin Turner signed with the Blue Jays, which. Yeah. I, I'm not sure whether it takes them out all the way on Matt Chapman or Cody Bellinger, but it, it narrows the, the lane for them by a lot. Like it, it'd be surprising now if they were in on either of those guys. I mean, all so he's going to do is DH for them, right? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, he can. Pre- I mean, he can still play a little third and a little first, but yeah. he'll pretty much DH. And but the main thing is they're paying him thirteen million dollars, and hmm. that that puts them right back to basically where their payroll was last season. So I don't think they have a lot more spending room based on what they said at the beginning of the offseason and stuff. Plus their lineups, it's not a world beater. And I know Blue Jays fans aren't aren't thrilled about how it's sitting now, but it's basically rounded out. It doesn't have an obvious need for a guy and they don't necessarily have the spending power for it. So we're getting Mm -hmm. down to it. Like Turner signing, Jorge Polanco being traded to the Mariners. These are little avenues being sort of cut off and and the the market finally starting to tighten so i think we're going to get news in the next week or so hopefully before yeah. spring training opens i think it's going to be february 9th which was tom's original yeah <laughs> and we were all like tom no come, come on. on tom what the hell <laughs> it's january 29th wait that's two days ago what the hell yeah well, I, I made it past the 29th so yeah, <laughs> you gave us that compromise date and it sailed right by and nothing happens. <laughs> Although even hear on anything. the 29th, I did have to do a whole bunch of writing and working. It was just on twin stuff instead of cub stuff. So oh yeah, yeah. I have one last baseball thing. Um as a proud parent, I I I always read your stuff with glee. Uh, but recently you wrote an apology to Judd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And um, oh, talk to me. I missed that. I, yeah, and I, uh, I, I didn't even finish it because I was just like, <laughs> don't, don't give him an out. <laughs> I mean, I know it was about, you know, good. Uh, was it a trade or a draft? Pick? It was. It was the draft. And actually, yeah, this, yeah. I didn't tell the story uh, in a real personal way on in the article I wrote. It went up. Friday, maybe Friday or Saturday. Yeah, so folks there, yeah. can go find it at Northside Baseball. But uh, it was about the 2022 draft and how coming into it, there were the Cubs were picking seventh, and there was a consensus that there were six really good prospects in the draft. So that was an unfortunate situation. Uh, but then by just the way things worked out, the Rangers were playing some games because they had 
fewer draft picks than usual. The Marlins are stupid and they continue to be stupid. Uh, and the Cubs ended up having two of those six, everybody agreed, great guys that were on the board when they got there with the seventh pick. And dad, we were at you guys' house. That, that was July of 22. We just happened to be out there for, I don't know. We were coming and going and grilling mm-hmm. in the backyard. And I remember just drifting over to the TV and seeing that Brooks Lee and Cam Collier were both still on the board and the Cubs were up to draft and they drafted Cade Horton. And I was like, well, these guys don't know what they're doing. It's <laughs> stupid. And I clung to that for quite a while. And I said, you know, this was a pop-up guy. He was coming off an injury. He had a short track record as a pitcher. The thing about the thing that's supposed to make collegiate pitchers interesting and exciting is that unlike prep pitchers, they've shown you they can stay healthy a little bit. They've shown you they can dominate relatively high levels of competition. There's a track record there. Well, Horton brought no track record and Horton belonged to a riskier demographic. And you had two guys, one who was an incredibly young son of a former big leaguer that everyone agreed had this great hit tool in Collier and one who was a much toolsier than usual college shortstop because he could have signed right out of the draft as a high schooler, but he badly wanted to go to school because his dad was the coach at Cal Poly in Lee. These are great options, great guys to just seize. And I was like, can't believe they passed on that to take this ridiculous risk with Horton and some high school kid, a pitcher who they were able to sign with the money that they saved because Horton signed for a little over a million less than either Collier or Lee. And now we flash forward a year and a half and I was just so, 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 so wrong. <laughs> or at least the, the bet that the Cubs made, the gamble they took, Hoyer and Dan Kantrovitz, the scouting director who's been there now since 2020, uh, they won it big time. Everything came up with what they needed. It's not Which to only... me. Go ahead. That kind of reinforces that the draft is kind of uh, can be and and often is, especially as you get a little further away from the top picks and even the top picks. Um, is just a, it's a crapshoot. I mean, yeah. it all depends on you know if this guy's going to be healthy, if he, you know, doesn't, if he gets, uh, you know, a, a high maintenance girlfriend, if he starts to do drug, whatever the hell it is, there's so many things that are involved in there that can throw it off. And, you know, Horton and for that matter, Wicks and, and the Shaw kids seem to be moving through things uh, pretty well. And then you get people like, well, what, who, Ed, who's Ed, Ed, uh, Ed Howard, Ed, yeah. Ed Howard. Uh, Mitch Trubisky, people like that, who, who like, hey, this guy's gonna be great. He can't miss. Oh wait, he sucks, and it's just a crapshoot. Some of it is, and some of it's, you know, I think scouting. I'm trying to decide whether I believe this, but I'll throw it out as as a, a proposition, and you guys can decide what you think too. I think scouting is a little closer to being a crapshoot. You can see certain things but you can't see other things and you have to try to mentally translate well this this hitch in his swing is it something he's going to be able to smooth out and fix or is it going to 
absolutely wreck him when the guys he's facing are throwing 95 instead of 85. Right. Or, you know, things like that are very hard to do, but there are guys who are very good at doing them. And, and I want to say that scouting can be a skill, but I think it's a little more of a crapshoot. The thing that I think made this trade or this set of selections work for the Cubs is they both did player development well. That's the part that is much less of a crapshoot than it was a decade ago. Like much, much, much less because it's now much more um, coherently articulated to players informed by technology and evaluated by technology, uh, objectively sort of quantified in ways that it didn't used to be able to, training cues, um, force plates that measure your, you know, the force you put into the ground and stuff like that. The player development is the crucial thing. And the Cubs did it really well with Horton. You can see that because look at his prospect rankings. Look at the fact that we think he could pitch a bunch of really good innings for the Cubs this year, just two years after that draft. And then look at Ferris too. They brought him along, gave him a pretty aggressive assignment, but also kept him healthy, kept him, you know, looking good in low A at 19. And then the other thing, you got to, the scouting, you got to get a little lucky on maybe. The player development, you have to be good at. And it's not, it's not no longer a matter of luck, but it's still difficult. The third thing is strike while the iron's hot. I'm not saying Jackson Ferris won't turn out to be great. He might turn out to be really great. But the Cubs traded him for Michael Bush, who is slotting right into like, depending on, how the rest of the offseason goes. Michael Bush is probably their almost everyday fifth hitter this year. And they traded Jackson Ferris for it. Yeah. And that's that I keep using that word capital. Um yeah. you got you have to have those people that are or the that capital uh to use it when you need it. And and you making those choices <clears throat> I give Judd and, and uh, Connor a hard time, but um those are not easy choices to make. Uh, you know, you can just as easily completely screw that up. Um, what was, yeah. uh, let's, let's, I can throw out the names Brolio and Brock. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, you just don't know until you know. And when you know, it's already 10 years down the road. Right. Well, what I wonder is we have learned so much. Um, we've gained so much in evaluating, measuring the last 20 years. I mean, you go back 20 years, it just seems like the Stone Age. Mm-hmm. Is the next 20 years, are we going to see advances? Are we going to look back at 2024 and go, guy, we, we didn't know what we were doing? Or <laughs> no, is or have we kind of peaked on that um, so that in five years from now, we're not going to say, oh, we know so much more about evaluating. We know so much more about measuring than we used to. In 20 years, all professional sports will be played by robots. So <laughs> I guess that changes the calculus then a little yeah. bit, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just microchips at that point. I I kind of think it's a an asymptotic thing where oh wait, what? Oh who where, where my bell? It, an asymptote. It's when a line the the arc described by an equation is getting closer and closer to a given line, but never actually reaching it. Tom probably uh, knew that one. And it sounded to me like you said, asshole Todd. 
<laughs> well, never. Well, that's you the etymology. Rule that out. But, but, yeah. <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to get to a point of, of having perfect knowledge on this stuff, which means we'll always look back 20 years and go, oh, we were wrong about 19 things. Yeah. But we relative to 20 years before that, at that previous point, we knew way more than we knew the 20 years before that. And by an even wider margin than, you know, like 2024, we are much smarter than 2004. But 2004 was much, much smarter than 1984. Oh, you think and, so? So there was a bigger uh, advance in those? Yeah, so huh. I think that's a because I think there's a difference, too, between what's actually known and what the public knows is known. <laughs> you know, Michael Lewis wrote Moneyball, and we all think that analytics and sabermetrics began right then. But it didn't. You know, Bill James started writing his abstracts in the 70s. And people think that's when sabermetrics began, but it didn't. It's been, it started inching along. And then as more money flowed into the game and people started taking the decisions that were made in the game a little more seriously a lot of exploration started happening but a lot of it would be below the surface or behind the scenes or it'd be imperfect because it was a new field and you were hacking your way through underbrush right and now those fields are cleared and we're working with high class machinery but it can still be improved but we sort of went through this swoop where i think the fastest changes in what we knew came from from maybe the the mid 70s through the mid 2000s and since then even though things have gotten fancier and fancier the returns aren't necessarily growing i think they have started to diminish but they'll never like i said it's it's an asymptote they'll never turn negative we'll keep learning things but the advantages we get are going to be smaller and smaller. Smaller and smaller. Yeah. I think we all wish there would be another money ball event mm -hmm. where yeah. some team just figures something out and they're like years ahead of everyone else until, you know, folks start going, okay, we're going to do exactly what they're doing or, or understand what they're doing. And yeah, I, I tend to agree that it seems like the chances of that are, are diminished, but yeah. we got to enjoy that anyway in the early two thousands. Yep. And it, but the thing is, like I said, when Lewis wrote that book, it came out in 2003. He was documenting something that had been happening for a decade, ah, for right. at least seven or eight years. It's just the way he laid it out sort of hid that ball from from you if you weren't reading carefully. And the fact that it just appeared in airports across the U.S. in 2003 made everyone think it was a sudden trend as opposed to a book about a, a longer stretching trend. So yeah, I don't know. There's, there's a lag effect there too, but anyway, I was wrong. The Cubs were right. And I think not only being right for a bit, but cashing in, but it's, it's almost like a hedge, right? Like they didn't wait to see is Jackson Ferris going to stay good and progress awesomely up the ladder and become an ace. They, got him to a point where he had a bunch of trade value and then they pounced on that. And that's, that's just good, nimble, confident work. And 
part of the premise of my criticism at the time was I didn't think that this front office had that in them. So I have to admit I was wrong and they were right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. That's our baseball stuff for tonight. Uh, breaking news has not happened while we've been mm. on this podcast. Much to everyone's shock, I know. Uh, there's one more section left, and it's it's an important one. We've been waiting for a long time. With <laughs> bated breath. <laughs> I'm going to uh, pull up in my car just so I can concentrate on this. <laughs> <laughs> on what we're about to hear. Uh, then, then the police will come and tap on the door. What are you doing, <laughs> sir? <clears throat> so, okay. So I have struggled with this tremendously oh first thing i listened back to our our previous uh podcast and i misspoke i called uh the largest sequoia the largest tree in the world by the wrong name it's not general grant it's general sherman i don't know why yeah we were gonna we're wondering if you're gonna catch that or not (laughs) yeah uh so anyway i apologize to both grant and sherman and especially the tree um (laughs) Which one do so, you apologize to more, Grant or Sherman? Uh, probably yeah. Sherman. No, that's a digression we can't afford. Go on. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so last week I or last time, whenever that was, I uh announced that I believe uh, giant sequoia is the most magnificent tree in the world. Um, and there is one above all others, and that's General Sherman. Um, but I've been struggling with this. Her- t- horribly it's been terrible um to come up with four trees which is what i wanted to do uh to be the mount rushmore of trees or mount brushmore um and i i couldn't you know and when i say four trees i mean this tree you know let's say japanese maple is is one of the the greatest trees in in america um i i couldn't I couldn't do it. Um, I, I, my list would grow past 20 or 25. Um, and I could not squeeze it down. So, um, what I've done is I've, I've looked at, um, things in, in, in a little bit different light. So first tree, um, the, is the quaking Aspen quaking Aspen is, um, it's cool to me because for two, for a couple different reasons. Uh, one of them is that there is a, and I've, I think I've talked about this before, an organism in uh, Utah, which is one organism, uh, two or 106 acres called Pando. Uh, it is, it's actually a grove of quaking aspen trees, uh, but they are, they are one organism in that their roots have, have, uh, grown together, um, to, and they, they, you know, basically they're, they're, they've created, uh, new trees from, from the originals. Um, so that for a while there, it was the largest living organism in the world, 107 wow. acres of, of tree that is essentially all one tree. Um, that's one of the reasons that quaking aspen is really cool to me. And, you know, it's in the United States. It's, uh, it's quaking aspens are kind of cool anyway, because they, they quake when the, the wind blows. Um, but there's another reason, uh, in 1969, 
Um, where is that story? There we go. Uh, in 1969, here in Appleton, Wisconsin, just down the road, at the Institute of Paper Chemistry, um, Dr. Lawson Winton created the first test tube tree, uh, which was mm -hmm. a triploid quaking aspirin. Uh, aspirin, did I say aspirin? Um, uh, and changed the paper industry immensely. Uh, still today, genetic engineering of, especially that, that family of trees, uh, aspens and uh, populars, poplars, um, are, are some that, that gives us much more readily, readily, readily renewable fiber for paper. You know, paper is not a big, as big a thing as it was back in the day, but, um, it's still, obviously it is. Um, there's just, it's not, uh, writing paper anymore. It's a thousand million different other uses for paper, but, um, junk mail. So, it's all junk mail, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, 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 re I recycled some of that today. Um, but the the cool thing about uh, that quaking aspen in here in Appleton was um, that it was the first genetic or first test tube tree, the first uh, genetic uh, reengineering of of that tree. Um, and then that was in 1969. And then uh, 30 years later. What what happened was they they took those trees and they 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 grew in a test tube and then they took them out into the yard of uh, the Institute of Paper Chemistry and planted them in the ground and they grew they did fine they, they did what they were supposed to do they were a little stunted and a little weird uh, and you know obviously they were the first ones so they weren't going to be perfect um, but thirty years later uh, and then some I think. Uh, that Institute of Paper Chemistry was had moved out of that building, and those trees were still around. Well, two or one of them was still around of the three, I think, that they planted. Uh, and but the building was going to be uh, reused, and and a group of those uh, people that were involved in that um, discovery and that that work uh, wanted to save the one that was still there, so that we transplanted that tree from the. Uh, Institute of Paper Chemistry, which was near Lawrence University, to the Arboretum, which at that point I was the director of, uh, and it lived the rest of its life there, which wasn't very long because it was not in good health when it came to us. We actually were really worried about it making the trip. Uh, it did live for four or five years after that. And if you're familiar with trees at all, um, Quaking aspen uh, don't live that long anyway. That was 35, maybe even, I don't think it was pushing 40 years, but um, they just, they don't live that long. Uh, they've got a short lifespan. So, and it was twisted and gnarled and ugly. And every, we, every time we'd, the school kids would come around and we'd tell them all about this, this is the greatest tree ever in Appleton. They're like, really? It's uh, kind of looks like crap. <laughs> Um, they were just but, better that they didn't get to tour the Institute of <laughs> Chemistry. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, Quaking Aspen, uh, that's tree number one. So, um, tree number two is actually a group of trees, um, and I'll call them SPF and SYP. And SPF means spruce pine fir, and SYP is southern yellow pine. So, um, you know, if you look back over history, 
uh, basically, uh, you know, us white people, we came to America and cut everything down. Um, but the lumber industry was, was and is huge in the United States. And we can't just expect oaks to grow back in 15 minutes. It's just not going to happen. So uh, what lumber and you know, lumber industries, you know, lumber industry started to do was to plant things that would grow a little bit faster. Uh, and they, they started using SPF spruce pine fir for lumber. Uh, and, and that's the Northern uh, collection of, of plants The Southern yellow pine obviously is something that's, that's grown in the South and uh, it, it changed the lumber industry. We weren't just going out into the forest and cutting down whatever we wanted. We go out in the forest and cut down what we want. And then we plant SPF or SYP to restock that land in a relatively short period of time so that we can, continue to have the lumber that we need uh, to do what we need to do, which is sprawl across the world. Um, but um, it's, it was, it's been a very important change uh, to our economy. Not very exciting though, is it? Um, <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> the other one to me, uh, number three, I, I wanted to, you know, what I one of the, like I said, I wanted to pick out individual trees like General Sherman or Pando, which is one tree, or, you know, like uh, there's a banyan tree in uh, Indonesia or something that's like, you know, it's like it's the size of a county. Um, but I, you know, I couldn't, couldn't nail it down. And I wanted to do that with an oak tree in uh, the United States. And there are some significant oaks uh, in the United States, but there's so many. And uh, oak trees are are so ingrained into uh, tree geek people in, in the United States that uh, I don't know that you could really just pick one. So uh, I'm saying oak trees. Um, and, and it depends on where you're at as to where what that means. Uh, in the south, live oaks, you know, you see the big old sprawling, huge oaks with limbs that are laying on the ground and uh, Spanish moss hanging out of the tree. It's it's iconic. Uh, and uh, up here in Wisconsin, it's white and bur oak. Uh, uh, John Muir, I think it is, said that uh, when he came to Wisconsin, he uh, noticed or, or recorded that... Um, a squirrel could leap, could uh, climb a tree on the Lake Michigan shore and not touch the ground until he got to the Mississippi River. Um, you know, this was way we've back taken when, care obviously. of that since then. Yeah, we get we we changed that pretty quick. Um, but oaks are uh, they're significant to the United States. They're significant to me. They're significant uh, to Wisconsin. Um, the white oak is the state tree of Wisconsin, and it's a beaut. So if you ever get a chance, plant one. Now, tree number four of the four in on Mount Brushmore. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, like I said, I couldn't just pick a tree, say this is the tree that is, this is one of the greatest trees, or this is one of the greatest trees, or this is one of the greatest trees. Uh, but this time, I'm going to pick one that is, to me, a great tree that um, has meant a lot to me, I guess that sounds kind of weird. 
Um, but it's it's something that I just think everybody should have. You know, when, when I was going through all this, I was thinking, well, you know, so, so do you, you want to just do a general uh, term like shade tree or ornamental tree or fruit tree or whatever? And um, I just couldn't nail that down. So one, what I came up with is a tree that's native to Wisconsin. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's a perfect species for, uh, for a number of reasons. Um, it's, it'll grow in the forest and it, and, and it uh, provides, uh, cover and uh, food for, uh, wildlife, but it looks great. And I've got one in my yard. Um, it's an amelanchor canadensis, which is a service berry. Uh, or a Juneberry, depending on what you like to use as your common name. Um, it's uh, you can get them now in single stem varieties or or kind of shrubby looking things. Mine's kind of shrubby looking. Um, it's got tasty uh, blueberry tasting fruit about the size of your pinky nail uh, in June, and you've got to fight off the birds to get it because they will win unless you throw a net over the top of it. Uh, it's got a great fall color. It's got before those berries in, in summer, it's got uh, great uh, flowers in spring. It's um, it's probably my favorite tree. Now, I say probably because I also have like six others on my list that I, depending on when you talk to me, um, I might say are my favorite tree. But it's the one I'm putting on Mount Brushmore. Um, so, that's it. Wow. It's Quaking wow. aspen, uh, SPF the lumber trees, uh, oaks, uh, mighty oaks, and serviceberry. And then off in the distance, standing alone, uh, the cra crazy horse of trees is the giant sequoia. Beautiful. And because I know everyone listening is playing along at home, just to <laughs> make clear, uh, the quaking aspen would be the Lincoln, uh, dies young. And oh, yeah. Ooh, <sighs> listen to this. Listen to yeah, this. Here we go. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. yeah. Uh, groundbreaking. You know, that's, it's important. Uh, the, the SPF and SYPs, that's clearly, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Clearly. A, because <laughs> you're taking two different categories and lumping them into one, which is totally what everyone does. Everyone, when they try to remember, which presidents are on Mount Rushmore? They go <laughs> Roosevelt, but which Roosevelt doesn't matter. Roosevelt, <laughs> uh, but B because Teddy Roosevelt was manifest destiny manifested, and you know all about yeah true. Not it wasn't just colonial with him. It was very now we got to go all the way through the country and really yeah. leave our ugly mark on things. And these trees facilitated that gorgeously. They are they're really they're almost just chips off a of Teddy's block. Uh, the oak tree is Washington. Very generic, very basic. <laughs> President Washington tree oak. And then that would leave the service berry to be Thomas Jefferson, which I think is great because Jefferson was a flip flopping loser uh, who just looked beautiful in all seasons because he just kept changing what he thought according to the trend of the times and uh, serviceberry with its beautiful fall color and the berries and the flowers. It's good. 
looks pretty all the time, dressing itself up. Uh, but strangely, right by you with with any of its pernicious elements. Strangely, Jefferson uh, is considered by some to be America's first horticulturist. Yeah, and he would have loved that because he wanted yeah. everyone to think he thought of everything before anyone else thought of anything. Yeah, he uh, brought all kinds of plants and seeds and roots and trees from uh, from France and England. Yeah. Uh, I, so there we go. That's I have an even higher opinion of the True Bloods right now. For Todd for coming up with this very thoughtful list and Matt correlating it to the presidents <laughs> on Mount Rushmore. I, I was scribbling notes furiously and I stretched <laughs> a couple of places. I like the way you honest. use words like clearly. Clearly <laughs> this tree. <laughs> At least right. clearly is one uh, we can understand. What was that acidophus? What would you? What was that thing? Asymptotic. Oh, asymptotic. Acidophilus. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Okay. <laughs> if DJ's still alive and he's listening to this tomorrow, it'll give him something to look up on the plane. I, uh, I think that's. I think we've done enough damage for one night here, fellas. A lot of damage. Significant yep. damage. Very good. Yep. Very good. Yep. Us and Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Well, he he took care of his ahead of time he's been done for a while well, i'm assuming mount brushmore will be uh in wisconsin somewhere in the state of wisconsin when mm -hmm. it actually becomes a physical manifestation See, the question well, is will it be four trees actual trees planted and you you look at them or will it be stone replicas of those four trees uh, <laughs> well the sequoia is never going to grow here so i'm gonna have to okay. probably do okay. now i could do a, a facsimile thereof uh, there's a plant called a dawn redwood uh, which would does grow in wisconsin but it's it's not a true redwood i think maybe uh like an origami thing it'd be ironic it'd be a little bit cruel frankly <laughs> but if you just made the entire mount brushmore uh, monument out of paper I don't know. It could be like, like that scene in uh, in uh, Spinal Tap where they wanted to do a full size yeah. thing of Stonehenge, but the exactly. guy got it wrong. <laughs> so now there's going to be this little tabletop version of of Mount Brushmore. It'll be like you know, eighteen inches tall. Oh, well, I think oh. if the trees are proportional, then just, it's going to look funny anyway because you have this huge sequoia and then there's a smaller tree. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. You just Matt. take. It would take a real artist, but you just prune a series of bonsai trees to represent and look like these other extraordinarily different trees you know what's weird is i'm that's a I'm lot of work really <laughs> contemplating uh having someone uh draw do a painting of this yeah <laughs> so with uh but you gotta it's all gotta be organic materials like you gotta crush up service berries to make the <laughs> the, the red hues and... that's a that's a little too uh hippie but... look you you just made a countdown of so. your all-time favorite trees what we did is trap you into being a hippie you didn't even know it <laughs> until right now and with that this is this is not a rebuild everyone take care and please remember todd trueblood is a hippie <laughs>